Hey guys, I'm Alan, and this is the Handbuilt Podcast. Could you sound a little more fucking depressed? Today's guest is Jonathan Ward of Icon 4x4 fame. For you guys who don't know who Jonathan Ward is, I suggest you go to icon4x4.com. He is somewhat of a visionary in the aftermarket automotive industry who's applying a, a good deal of his design to many different genres. I find him to be inspiring in, in a lot of different ways. The reason this podcast even exists is as an excuse for me to sit down with some people that I am inspired by to get to know them a bit better and, and learn more uh, about their backgrounds. It's also an opportunity, I think, to share with people that are listening um, the same things that inspire me mostly in, in design. That's my passion, and I think that it's something worth acknowledging and trying to deconstruct. And Jonathan is certainly one of those people. It's still interesting in audio format, but I highly recommend going to our YouTube channel. There's a lot of B-roll and uh, uh, video footage of his work. Anyway, thanks for watching. Please comment. Uh, tell us what you think about this podcast. If you have recommendations for formatting or anything, or even if you don't like my dumb hat, we intend to do this a lot more. Stay tuned. Try, try it again. Hey guys, this is Alan. And this is the Handbuilt Podcast. That was beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. It's going to be that kind of shit. <laughs> <laughs> Today, we're sitting down with uh, a relatively new friend of mine who I think has already become a hero. Actually, I know he's become a hero of mine in a lot of ways. We're making eye contact, which is awkward. But uh, <laughs> I th hopefully, you guys learn as much about him uh, as possible because I don't know that much about him other than that look of recognition that tells me he is afflicted and he is addicted and he loves all things design, uh, gearhead or otherwise. Uh, I think we just go straight into it. All, all right. right. Are you about to rub my knee? Is no, I'm not going to rub your knee. Okay. You got me all wrong, man. We're real close. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Jonathan uh, is uh, well known for his automotive design chops, uh, from what I know anyway. And uh, from my position and what I know is that he's made really, really kick-ass Land Cruisers is kind of what it got started with, but it's gone from there. So I'm first going to tell the story about how we met. All right. So I go to uh, SEMA. For you guys that don't know who, what SEMA is, it's okay. What, what does it stand for, Jonathan? Specialty Equipment Manufacturers Association. I think you could be an announcer soon. I think this could be your next <laughs> kick. I go to SEMA for the first time. Some friends urged me to go, and I've been wanting to go for years. Uh, I go with a camera and, and uh, Stefan, my ex-business partner, and we um, are walking around uh, looking at, you know, what's interesting? What might we film? Who might we talk to? I look and I see this, this kind of rough-looking 49 Merc. And I hadn't seen the car on the Internet or anything yet. And I walk over and I, and, and I was like, why is this kind of ratty, tatty car sitting in the middle of this booth? And I look under the hood and I'm like, oh, this shit's electric. And then I realize, oh, wait, this is an Icon car wait, is Jonathan here? I've never met this guy, Jonathan Ward. I know who he is because I'd watched a few of your YouTube videos where you talk to yourself driving around in a car. And and I asked the guy who's standing there next to it, is, is Jonathan here? Like, yeah, yeah, he's here. I was like, okay, cool. We're press. And I hold up the press thing. I was like, we, we would love to interview him and chat with him a bit. And he goes, okay, cool. Uh, he's going to be back in just a minute. A few minutes later, Jonathan walks up. I look at him and I introduce myself and I go, hi, I'm out. And he goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know who you are. I follow you guys on Instagram. Right away, he knows who we are, which was which was great. I thought it was a huge compliment that you knew who we were. But then I figured out later that you're actually a fan of everything, so it's not really all that special. 
But <laughs> we had this quite good conversation about the car. I learned a little bit about you. But more importantly, the instant vibe I got was, oh, my God, this we need to hang out. Yeah, right? like totally. we, we need to totally Immediately hang out. Immediately we, we hit it off. Yeah, right. Um, Especially thanks to our Canadian farmer friend. That was absolutely oh hysterical. God. For you guys that haven't seen it, if you go watch our daily videos from SEMA, if you just put in Revival Cycles in SEMA, you can pull up the video where this guy interrupts our interview in a, in a hysterical way. It's it was, brilliant. He it, just went on and on and on, and he was very committed to his perspective. You, I think you it's, know those uh, Canadian farmers are. Clean power is hydroelectric. Clean power is solar. Hydroelectric clean... isn't clean. Why not? Because it's heating the water when it's going through the turbine. Would you rather burn coal? Oh, you betcha. Would you like to reuse that hot water for other utilities that have value to society? Oh, you know, see, let's get real here. California <laughs> has cut us off from burning coal in Canada. Uh, you know, I used to live in Canada, and, and I had not come across that particular oh, I was type joking. of Canadian. I've never yeah. met one of those. I think uh, he yeah. may have been a one-on-one. It's something weird, something strange. Anyway, um, uh, and what I like about your work is, without a doubt, and what attracted me to that car and then the, the conversations was your absolute intimate attention to detail and the fact that you knew what the fuck you were talking about, which I don't, right? <laughs> Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. I'm into everything, but to watch someone go that deep into the discussion, n treating us as though we knew everything that was going on is rare. Most of the guys you meet that are at your level are kind of full of themselves, or they don't know how to bring themselves to the conversation of an enthusiast who just wants to share. Well, it's because I don't know what I'm doing in the same as I've gotten an older, beautiful sense that I think you don't know what you're doing in that we're following stuff we love and we're passionate about. And you're either born being a complete lunatic who is drawn to like every little finial and detail and finish and tactile and visual balance, or you, you're not. And I don't think you can school that. So it's just the, the joy in like, sharing that, especially when you can tell someone else has the similar affliction, right? Then to me, it's, it's, it's not about ego or, or any of that. It's just, oh, you get it. So come over here and look at this, but, you know, but did you know that stuff. about us before we walked up? Yeah. From your products, from, from your, I mean, not from your leather edges, but yeah. from your, uh, <laughs> sorry, it's an inside <laughs> joke. <laughs> my, my lack of burnishing, can we call it that? Yeah. The, uh, no, no, from, from your bikes, from your builds, from your style. Yeah. Um, no, it was obvious. I, I thought, and I've seen you interact with other people that I don't think you know, and I've seen you show the same level of care and enthusiasm and, and you know, knowledge, or sh knowledge sharing to, to people that, that you don't know who they are. So, I find that to be like a really endearing, sincere thing to see. And I struggle with it myself, not because I'm what I've learned in my own personal path is that it's not because I think I'm better than those people. It's actually because I'm afraid of disappointing them by not telling them the part that's the most important to them or hmm. not saying it in the right words or not giving enough detail. I'm actually intimidated by what their expectations are more than... <laughs> more than looking down on them and thinking, oh, they're not going to understand, right? You know, or, you know, sometimes it's that I've told the same story 50 times and I don't want to tell it again, but yeah. But, we're, but, but to me, it's like owning uh, that I'm not professionally trained. As a designer. As or, a designer. Um, I'm not an art center 
gratter or whatever I was supposed Neither to be, am I. right? Yeah. And I used to be more self-conscious and sensitive about that. Now, like, I speak there, I grade the senior transportation finals, and I'm tight with the school and, and love that relationship, but I'm so happy I am not and it's a point trained. of pride at this point. And now it's a point of pride that I that I'm I'm doing what speaks to me and I see the world as a self-proclaimed industrial designer in a unique way that's just naturally the way I see things or want to see things made. So it's the frustrations of interacting with uh, products or designs that are done in ways that just irritate the piss out of me because you're an idiot. Why didn't you think that through? You know, just like sloppy design or I like it this way, but just owning the fact that I don't know and then being able to turn that into an actual career and be able to avoid a real job, then I think there's a big responsibility on being a storyteller because you and I are storytellers in what we make and what we hopefully sell. So if we ain't selling our story, if we're not telling the story, if we're not explaining the layers of lunacy you know, that got us to why that particular piece functions or appears that way, then we're probably screwing ourselves. I think even the, even the motivation for this podcast is, you know, how many conversations have you and I have, we've had lots already. And, uh, the, I don't, to structure it and to learn as much as possible in the form of this podcast, that that's my main motivation. If we share it and other people see it and they care and it means something to them, awesome, but selfishly, it's that I want to have the reason to sit down and ask structured questions that mean something. And I've been somewhat structured with you, but I don't normally have a, an actual plan. It's more like, hey, I just want to come see what you're doing and ask some basic questions. And anyway, like when I was at your place. And anyway, so, but I do want to ask some questions. You ready? All right, let's get into this. So give me some historical context for, I mean, I've already found out some really fascinating things about you that I definitely wouldn't have guessed. But tell me your story. I mean, how, what got you? Where did it start? Teenage years, you moved to California. I'm sorry, you're from California. No, no. You're no. right back east, Maryland. No, back east. Okay, no. I remember that part. You're, you're from back east. Tell me what what got you to move to California and what happened. Can you give me that? Born in a really small town uh, in Maryland called Elkridge. My family, uh, multiple generations in the Eastern Shore in Virginia, Cheshpeak by, and uh, my my dad um, and his father and his father uh, were crabbers, Chesapeake fishermen, and uh, my dad went into the Coast Guard, um, ended up uh, getting a law degree, and was uh, the first in in the family to like not only leave the town and go to college, but, um, you know, uh, become an attorney, whatever. And, and my mom also came from a fairly small town mentality family. And both of them, for whatever reason, like always yearned for more culture and travel and exposure. And um, I think it became a critical thing for them when my sister and I were still really young to try and figure out ways to get us exposed to more than, than their families have been exposed to. Um, big family hobby. My parents, uh, like have you ever seen dog show, like it's not exaggerated. Yeah. It is the geekiest community on the planet or one of, and what was uh, their chosen breed? So West Highland white terriers, Norwiches Little and Newfoundlands. Things. Yeah. Yeah. I know Newfies. Yeah. So, um, we did the dog show stuff and, I'd be kind of bored, but fun road trips. I have early memories of like 
you know, seeing that early sunrise road trip line of hot rodders off to some meet somewhere and always was sort of intrigued by the lines and the shapes and the colors of that. And at what age are we talking about? You think that that started? Six, seven, okay. yeah. And then I'd also find, you know, when I'm sitting there at the dog shows and I'd be kind of bored, I'd have a sketch pad with me and I was always dug my dad's watches and like I'd start designing and drawing watches. Really? Or then I'd start trying to side hustle and get people to uh, give me a dollar to do a crappy sketch of their dog. And so I'd like have this little like side hustle business. And anyway, through that community, um, we ended up uh, meeting this w wonderful lady, um, Senator Monroney's wife, um, and they lived in D.C. You know, for cars, the Monroney label? I just figured that out recently. I was no. He's the one who, well, the Monroney is like the full disclosure. Here's what you're paying for oh, that car. Got you. Here's the MSRP or the options. It's called a, it's called a Monroney. It's named after him because he had fought for that, which I never knew to. I've bought uh, one new car in my life alive. and I literally just signed. I didn't even, yeah, somebody brought yeah, me paperwork. No yeah, I don't ever read that stuff. Anyway. But anyway, they lived in DC and my parents made a deal with them. So basically once a month, my dad would drive us from our little town to D.C. to stay with her for the weekend. And her responsibility was to expose us to the arts. So, you know, whatever, cool museum one weekend or what have you. And very early on in that relationship, we ended up going to um, the Kennedy Center. And it was uh, Mikhail Brinchnikov's first U.S. performance um, doing Don Quixote. Mm -hmm. And because of her connections in that community, we went backstage to meet him afterwards. And I, and I still remember it clearly. And so not my world, right? But I was intrigued by it. And always, again, been a geek for design and detail. So the grandeur, you know, of the green room and the theater and, and all of that really kind of spoke to me. Really? And um, he turned and started talking to me and uh, Brinchnikov. And he's, you know, do you dance? And like I was, I sucked at sports, never coordinated at all. Uh, and uh, he said, uh, do, you, do you dance ballet? And I was thinking in my head, many different inappropriate answers. And I was like, uh, <laughs> no, sir. And he said, why? I said, well, I'm, I'm too short, which was my general go-to for everything. Answer yeah, for yeah, anything yeah, athletically yeah. involved. <laughs> Well, apparently that's the wrong thing to say to him because that's what everyone told him. He'd never amount to anything as a dancer and he's oh, really? wasting his time and he'll never succeed. So next thing I know, I'm like his pet project. He takes me under his wing. He gets me set up with the Baltimore Repertory Dance Theater Company. This is over the summer at school. So I start taking ballet and dance classes and discover a great community of people. And I was never really like good at being a kid, like even like, I don't know, school conversations and drama and all that just seemed like bullshit to me. Even when I was little, little, it just wasn't my thing. I was much more comfortable like talking to my 70 year old godmother, having cool conversations than you're a freak. I'm sorry. A total freak. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so anyway, one thing leads to another. I briefly over the summer barely can dance doing little productions with them. One of the other kids who's in that, whose family was a lot more hot and heavy about it, was going off to New York City for a big like cattle call for a Broadway show. And I don't even know what the, a Broadway show was or what the Broadway show was. But again, my wonderful lunatic 
mom overhears this and says, can Jonathan go with you? You know, I'll, I'll give you, you know, 40 bucks for, you know, his food and stuff. But can he, I just want him to see the city. I want to experience the city. Which blew my mind, like reading uh, Raymond Lowy's book, Never Leave Good Enough Alone, and how he describes when he first got to the city and the overload of sensations, visual, olfactory, sound, everything. It was just phenomenal to me, and I was just drawn to all of it. But then I got bored again because I was sitting at this stupid cattle call with nothing to do, and I realized, oh, like anyone can sign their name to this list, and I'm sitting here stuck all day. So I'm like, all right, so I'll sign my name to the list. So I just copied the other kids. And next thing you know, I get it. And then my parents not realizing what it was or like, well, it's a pre-Broadway tour. And, you know, usually the way that business works, no one makes it to Broadway. So it's over school break. You, you know, travel experience. So my mom talked my dad into it and we went for it. And then it just, it's just like serendipitous, right? Like I said, it was one thing led to another because that was Peter Pan we did a pre-Broadway tour, and then it ran on Broadway for a year and a half. I never missed a single show. From that, I went on to do uh, Macbeth um, at the... This yeah, is so not what I thought we were talking at, about. At the Met and <laughs> The Little Prince, and I did several Broadway shows and off-Broadway and radio, and like this chance... Have, like My life, I feel, has like been an odd succession of lily pads that I'm hopping onto, not knowing where the next one is going to go. And uh, I had a really incredible experience with that because I was kind of a old soul in a kid's body. And suddenly I was in this environment where if I was as committed and as driven and, and as professional and really into it as seriously tenured professionals, I was given a seat at the table in those communities and that respect. And I love at what age? Um, seven. So yeah. Seven and, to nine, you were in this world. Or? Yeah. Well, no, and it continued and continued and kept going. Cause like, again, when my parents just thought it was going to be a summer, then, Oh, we'd break his heart. If we can't want to go to a Broadway, we hear most Broadway shows are canceled in two weeks. Next thing you know, it's a year and a half. By the time that's done, I get another one. Then I'm doing radio commercials, voiceovers, and TV stuff. And then CBS ends up putting me under contract and moving me from New York to California when I was 15. And it was just a crazy, wild road. And despite many of my dear dysfunctional cohorts, uh, I had a phenomenal experience and, and not like... Uh, it wasn't like a drug yeah. scene of, traumatic. You know, yeah. of trauma and uh, uh, exploitation. It was phenomenal experience of, of respect and experience and travel. And then came to California and kept doing it out here. Loved L.A. The second I found out, oh, wait, you can get a driver's license at 15? Oh. Like, <laughs> I'm in. I'm never leaving this place. Because uh, while I loved all the sense of design languages I got to understand in New York. I've always been drawn to transportation design. So you're going so fast. So well, it's because so I don't want to be no, boring. No, no, it's a crazy you. story. No, no. There's parallels that I've already heard though. You you literally just talked about how they took you seriously. Uh if you took it seriously and and, and essentially allowed you into their world as in and it, while you considered yourself to be an amateur right? Who just was making this up and figuring this out and maybe had a natural talent for it. But regardless, 
it, it's translated into you still, like I said a while ago, uh, sharing it as though everyone's at your level, really. And you, you may say that you did it with me because you knew who I was, but I think I've seen you do it with people. It doesn't, I mean, you do it to anybody. Okay. I could see that. And actually, what, I thought you were going even in a different direction, which gave me a realization point that I'd never considered my experience from that trajectory, which is I didn't feel like I was faking it. I felt that I was given a leg up and respect because I was trying and I did bring certain skills to it. So that must have given me confidence in a uniquely early time in my life to pursue and dive into and dig for more knowledge and experience and learn about stuff I just naturally am drawn to. And just think you could. Yeah. 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 Or just didn't know any better mm -hmm. to know that I That's what couldn't. I mean. yeah, so the no one was there to tell me I can't. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, the same thing happened with uh, my automotive brands. I mean, it, it, it started as a hobby and a passion and then an obsession and then it got deeper. And then it was so deep that I was pissing off my neighbors because I had 20 cars on my cul-de-sac cul street. And well, I better like better get legit and get a license, you know, and, and get a shop and get and, a yeah. shop and yeah. overhead and workman's comp and all that crap. But by um, the way, we go straight to workman's comp. Yeah. <laughs> straight to the, you can tell it's been 20 years or more. Yeah. Conversation it's goes directly trigger. there. <laughs> yeah. But, but it, uh, it like at, at large, I, I am, um, I've, I've been so, uh, honored, excited, lucky to, have had a life that's really let me follow things I'm drawn to and figure out how to not only most importantly keep the passion for it. Cause I'd argue as a child actor, I lost the passion for it as I had higher and higher standing uh, script approval, casting rights and all the things you yearn to get to have more creative control to then be super invested in something that when you see the final cut, it sucks. And then is a huge hit in like reruns for decades versus the things that I really loved and, and the, the community, the set, the cast, like we all just loved. And then they'd flop because it didn't meet a mass common denominator, yeah. digestible for America formula or whatever. And then it would fail. And then I had privacy issues out of stalker that got really, really, really bad. At what um, age did you have your stalker? Started when I was about 17 oh, and yeah. then um, became a critical problem uh, by the time I was 19, 20, at which point I was already kind of not excited about it anymore. And cars and travel had been More and, interesting. And, and woodwork and fine art painting and yeah, and leather work and sure. leather work and yeah. whatever <laughs> like, we're, we're like where I was really getting my fuel from anyway, more and more. And then I had a guy trying to kill me and I had to carry concealed for two years. Couldn't go to my own house. And that made me stop and go, okay, we, this is what I want to do. Yeah. This is yeah. what I want to do. And I was like, no. And if the goal is to be famous, having friends and acquaintances who were famous, famous and looking at how fucking miserable their lives were it's like no like that's not <laughs> like why i don't want to live in a bowl and no, so yeah, fishbowl yeah, yeah. No, everybody's walking watching. so transportation design was the most interesting communicable extroverted combination of not only so many different 
decades of design that I love, but mediums. So my woodworking, my sculpting, my fine art painting, my leather craft, my general love for car and engineering and mechanical, like what else can you combine so many different art forms into a singular cohesive high functioning sculpture that's so easy to actually enjoy and find utility in and to share in with people. And it was like yeah, the perfect that's universally. Yeah, yeah. I loved it. So you skipped like a few steps in there because you know, not that I don't want to make this about me, but I, but you know how as humans we relate by thinking about our own experience, we couldn't have maybe over dinner tonight, I can share with you more, but we couldn't have had a more different childhood and what was encouraged in me and what was discouraged and, what I was supposed to be and, and my own trepidation with, with trying anything outside the box. And although I started as an artist and wanted to be an artist, that was definitely my thing. Uh, I quickly fell off of that because I was told by the world or my parents or whoever it was, I don't know who it was, that that was a hobby. That was not something you could do. To I mean, now I hear that so often. Yeah, it was a hobby. And I was supposed to be a corporate maritime litigator, if you ask my dad. We've t I remember talking about this yeah. actually now. Yeah, yeah. But I think he realized very early on that that was not going to go down. But I think my youngest Wait, you Quinn mean when you will were be dancing litigator. on Broadway at age seven? <laughs> yeah, he was like, around then is when he got the message. <laughs> he's not going to be an engineer <laughs> or a footballer. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, I, I had no clue. We haven't talked about that at all. I was like, I didn't think we were going to end up on Broadway. It's funny because to me, it's almost like a different life. Yeah. And, and, uh, which how lucky are you to have lived multiple oh, yeah. existences, right? But like, Fuck. um, I don't reference it much at all in my life, hardly ever in media. And like the occasional intrepid journalist or whatever will be all. Go look. You don't want to go yeah. digging into that, and like I'm always immediately like, could we? No, like could we just not? Because like if if we're if we're talking about my work as it is today in in the spaces yeah. I exist, like I that adds absolutely no value or legitimacy. But you again, in your subtle alternative ways, have made me find more respect for the relevancy of that experience and where I am today. Because I honestly, I never really thought about it's there how that dovetail it, it, i mean it, i'm a firm believer that everything that happened to you from a young age very very young age before you even had a consciousness about who you, you as a person are i think you still it forms who you are today it's still there little johnny is still with you it's just morphed into something that, that doesn't might not look the same but most certainly i'm sure that if you know, we could transport back in time and look at you as a five-year-old. We'd see all the same similar personality traits and body movements and enthusiasm and all that stuff. And how lucky, I mean, how lucky are you? Shit. I'm sorry. I'm just like blown away by the fact that it was dance that we were going to get on to dance. I'm still trying to come back. So. I skipped by the Phil Black studying with tap dancing and the Sopranos and all the singing and all of that. So, so in the interest of, I think we'll run out of uh, data at some point on the hard drive. <laughs> no I'm kidding. What I was going to say is, um, to me, the story starts, and the only thing I know is talking with you and Jamie about, you know, when you she's from California, yeah, and you met when you moved out, and then imagining you, how long ago was that when you moved out there, or when you met her? Uh, met Jamie when I was twenty. 
So, uh, so you're 35 now. So, (laughs) so I met Jamie in uh, 2000, and uh, for listeners who, first of all, probably have no clue who the hell I am, we probably should give them an idea of that. But Jamie's my better half, my my wife and partner and founder in in our automotive brands, uh, TLC and Icon. You're based in L.A. or north of L.A. What, what, what's that town called? You live? I live in Sherman Oaks in okay. the Valley. Uh, in the and Valley? The shops in Chatsworth. Chatsworth, okay. I drove around there during the fires the other day. I don't know if I ever told you my whole story when I left you, but thinking about how far it was, I don't know actually how far Chatsworth was from LAX, but it was about two and a half hours that day. Oh, God. It was terrible because of mm. the fires that were mm. going on. I had to reroute through the middle of things. In Austin, we don't have this expansive uh, industrial district full of giant buildings, if you can't tell. Like, we just, they they don't exist. There's a few industrial parks in this town, but there's not much. That stuff's in Houston and Dallas. So you kind of have a leg up. You can get a building. To find a building the size of yours that's not brand new, nearly impossible. Yeah, the problem now in L.A., though, is the medical marijuana. Take your everything? But grow houses will show up, and if your business model is expecting... uh, square footage at a dollar a square foot or less for a hundred thousand square foot or larger building you're you're done fucking potheads i'm worried about it man when our lease comes up i see it coming because the 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 growers come in and they go you want a dollar a square okay cool we'll pay 250 a square we'll prepay the first year and here's an indemnity clause and a second tier insurance to indemnify you from any liability from what we're doing, you good with that? And the yeah. landlord's like, uh, yeah. yeah. Then like, Johnny who? Yeah, exactly. Um, Icon? Oil, I've never heard of them. Yeah, yeah, there's no oil stains. Yeah, bring it on. <laughs> um, so, sorry, I'm going to go. So you're based there. Um, how did how did, how did did Icon come to be, or really TLC? Start from the beginning, if you don't mind. So the beginning, teenager, California, get out of the apartment complex, rent a house, my mom you, hates driving, always did. So as soon as I could drive, I was the driver. And then I was the one supporting us being out here because we we're only out here because of what I was doing. So then I got to kind of decide <laughs> what cars we'd get, including our Nissan Sentra four-door wagon, which Ooh. I will say was incredibly bulletproof. Nice you car. could You could run that thing up to was that 80 six center wagon what a bucket of shit but you could wind that thing up to seven thousand rpms hot cold all day just hold it and it would hold and it would mm. never you i could not kill that wagon i tried so hard harness to a high mileage hemi head power plant the centra is a wagon wonder from nissan but anyway i took over the little two-car garage and was taking cars apart and restoring them and so where's your dad your was your dad so my dad's still paying off law school and running his law firm in Maryland, and then, poor guy, they opened a New York uh, office right around the time I we ended up getting relocated to California. So we kind of had a split family where my dad was coming out to visit as often as he could. Okay. But my mom was predominantly responsible for uh, dealing with my sister and I, and my dad would be the enforcer, you know. But, okay, so he was, really he was the he heavy. Was the he was the heavy. Yeah. So, is you was your dad into automotive or cars or anything? Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's always the story. Though. Okay. Yeah, I think so. And and interestingly enough, my mom's father, uh, pre World War II through to I think the mid '60s, ran a small 
car dealership, corner gas station, repair garage in Quinby, Virginia. Okay. So I have really early childhood memories of it was already closed down by then, but he owned the land. And I used to go into the back lifts and the service bays and, you know, the old pinup girl snap on calendars and old tools and his brake lathe and even a couple cars. And like, so I was always drawn to it. And then my dad never really had much cash to blow um, when we were at that point in our lives. And, um, but he was always a car guy. So he was always trying to get something that had some character, but you know, we had the country squire LTD wood panel wagon baby. Hell yeah. We even had a Maverick, I remember. So we didn't really get into any of the Lux until a little bit later. I remember my dad had one of the first, uh, 320 eyes, um, in the, that I, the only one I'd ever seen or anyone in anywhere in our area had seen. And I, I was super impressed with them and that. No, no, this is uh, 320i. I mean, yeah, 320i. So post, I'm thinking, yeah, post sorry, 2002. 80s. So this is 77, 78. And then I remember once uh, he had a used car dealer who, for some reason, again, we're in the middle of nowhere in Maryland. Uh, some guy had a uh, Traction Avant Citron. Oh. And talked the dealer into bringing it by the house to let me go with him on a test drive to take it on the freeway, half on the dirt shoulder, half on the tarmac to take his hands off the wheel at 70 to exclaim how phenomenal, and it was phenomenal, yeah. the suspension design was mm -hmm. on that creature. They also gave the car a radical new suspension system. Instead of conventional springs, each wheel is sprung on its own horizontal torsion bar. Lighter again than springs, uh, a more consistent performance, no running maintenance. And the ease and comfort of this car's ride was renowned right from the start. And then years later, I remember my dad telling me he had saved up his money when he was uh, in the Coast Guard. And he and his buddies pulled their cash, and they all bought 104 um, Austin Healy's and brought them back. And my dad once got a ticket. This is like the day I was like, oh, my goodness. Like, my dad actually might be cool. He got a ticket going through a toll booth back east with a girl on his lap doing the naughty and going through the toll booth, and she paid the toll, and the whole person didn't like it and had the cops pull them over give him a ticket thought it wasn't funny <laughs> i thought it was, i think it's hysterical it's brilliant i hate right? that toll booth operator <laughs> I'm like can i get up my hater. camera hang on <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i digress um but no so yeah in california i was just um you know the when I, especially when i was doing sitcoms the work schedule is kind of weird so you're two weeks on one week off two weeks on one week off so you're acting in sitcom or your voiceover or what are you acting, doing okay yeah. no shit and uh can I find any of this on the internet? Unfortunately, yeah. I guess I'm what you call your classic <laughs> sensitive guy. Richard T. Brown, upstairs now. Full name and middle initial. This can't be good. Uh, <laughs> what do we search for? I'm not going to help you at all. Uh, Jamie will. <laughs> so you, you can prolong the agony but do if you, know, you want. Do you know what Tony Nancy is? Or no. was? No. So Tony Nancy did like all the Rat Pack cars back in the day. Okay. So uh, he was also a top fuel dragster legend, early hot rod guy, he had a customizing shop in the Valley that literally, you know, Sinatra and Dean Martin and all the boys would go to. And through the hot rod community, I had a 33, three window Ford that I bought. I was doing, I was shooting steel magnolias in Louisiana 
And I was basically an overpaid extra on it. But the director was out of his mind. So he had like Sam Shepard and like serious actors and little old me TV actors. That, but it's a small That's town. Extras. It's a small town. So we want these people consistently around. I was My role was uh, Sally Field's son. Jonathan, I want you to keep your eye on your brother, Tommy. Am I my brother's keeper? No, your brother's warden is what you are. But I had like 10 lines in it. But it was You're no, in Steel Magnolia. Yeah, but I had like I no other work at the wait. time, and the, the pay was stupid good. <laughs> yeah. And it was so much fun, because we're in the middle of nowhere with tons of per diem, and everyone's agent every week, because they just had us on a weekly contract, and then it turned into like favored nations, where Sam Shepard or little old me, like we were all paid the same thing. And then all the agents started conspiring, because this director was such a prick. And they double everyone's rate every week because he never had the foresight to like, okay, 10-week contract, we want everyone. No, every week they'd go to extend and renew. And they needed you to finish, but I was right? on, yeah. I was like on will notify every day, which means you don't even go on set. You just keep a phone. So I had my little tan Motorola brick phone. Befriended the local Teamsters. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so any cool cars in town, like any of the Teamsters that were locally hired, found a 33-3 window. Guy wanted to get a new bass boat, so it was time to let it go. It was his daddy's hot rod back in the 60s. He was 283. Oh, old Kriegers on it. It was cool. And then a guy with a local body shop that had gone out of business like two months earlier, had nothing to do. So I just, okay, I bought the car from him. I hired that dude. And with my per diem, when I'm supposed to be on set, but I'm on will notify, I built that hot rod the whole time while I was on that film. And then my one mistake was we, we went to New Orleans for a party weekend and I painted it. You ever painted with nitrocellus lacquer? No. Oh, it's super cool. Okay. Um, Just the crackle stuff or what? It's Yeah, it's early lacquer. Yeah, but what's yeah. cool about it is like you can like paint that way. in a sandstorm and then color sand it for a week and get like the most amazing finish. Mm -hmm. But I think it shaves like decades off your life per layer. But yeah. anyway, I was too impatient and had this romantic view of driving my 33, you know, in New Orleans, you know, so my, I'm screw it. Let's take it. So we drove it there, but we drove through the night <laughs> and mosquitoes there. When I sold that car, like 10 years later, I could, the mosquitoes were still embedded in those Cracks. beautiful swooping front fenders. I, uh, I couldn't rub them out. Right. But it was so much fun. So, you started building cars when yeah. you were acting. And... Yeah, just as like fulfilling, fun. How old are you? Hobby. Uh, right before I got my license. So yeah, I was 15. Yeah. And then years later, um, I didn't go to college. I have really no proper education at all, but I've always been an avid learner, either reading or shut up or listen. And Tony Nancy, I was introduced to through guys, old guys I had met because of my hot rod. And I started being his like shop intern. So I would sweep the floors, do whatever I needed to do and learn everything I could from Tony, who's an absolute legend. And uh, Tommy Ivo, you know, the, that whole early hot rod scene. And um, one, I remember one day this black Aston Martin Lagonda, which you know I have a perverted lust for. And I know they're a bucket of shit, but I they're so one cool. so bad yeah, still. So, I was looking at them just a few weeks ago. They're so wrong that they're right. I was trying to convince Tony he needed one. So there you go. That's a good angle. <laughs> so a black one with orange pinstripes rolls in, blacked out windows. And who jumps out of it? Evil fucking Knievel. And I was like, oh, my God. Like, 
done deal. Of course he drives that car. Of course he drives that car. And now I absolutely must have one of those cars one day, you know. But so cars were just always my hobby. And then I was taking a business class at USC, like a night extension class. By the way, that's formal education. You said a while ago you didn't have any. That Technically, that's formal education. I mean, it wasn't even enrolled. Whatever. Thank you. I'll take it. Great. No, I just mean that you can't claim you have no education because... Because I read a, a you couple have a ton of education, books and but no formal. Life, if you yes, sat in a no class, formal. if you sat in a class, that's formal. Okay. That's what they call it. So I got into an argument with that teacher because I wasn't very good with structure uh, at said I've class so I was supposed to be learning. And well, he was presenting supply and demand. And my theory was, now that's bullshit. Like today, if you can control the supply, you can create the demand. So it turned into this heated debate between the professor and another student, which turned into a thousand dollar bet. And I was given, I think it was six months to drive a trackable market up. I think it was 20 points to win the bet. So apparently they promptly forgot about it, but like it was under my skin and I was like, all right, fuckers, it's on. I'm going to win this bet. I'm going to get me a grand. So I started, I'd loved land cruisers, FJ forties specifically from my travel habits at that point i'd already been to maybe 30 countries and i noticed like when it's life or death what your wheels are you know the land cruiser the value they had to individuals and communities around the world was so impressive and it made me look deeper and deeper at the brilliance that was the design and engineering versus in la or in the states in general like oh them toyota jeeps you know like people if they appreciated him it was from a world travel experience or something unique, but no one was really restoring them like they would a classic. So I started going on road trips to pawn shops, buying up vintage horse jackets, which I was painting and having fun with and flipping to Fred Siegel's. I used to sell them there. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, when I was like 20. But I started buying up every good FJ40 Land Cruiser I could find. And me and what, what year is this, by the way? I'm just curious. Early to mid '90s, and, and I remember in high school having an appreciation for FJs. Mm-hmm. So, but you were similar. kind of the the weird guy. Yeah, for, I was, in that no, room, absolutely. Right? Everyone Everybody else, else had Chevy pickups, fives, and, and yeah, 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 Blazers. Yeah, I was into FJs. So, my thinking was, why not just take the traditional respect of a proper restoration and apply it to these because they're epic, and then that's what I did to win the bet. So me and often my old chocolate lab, Walter, would hop in my 65 F-250 three-quarter ton, and we would go on fun road buying trips. Occasionally, we'd bring the girlfriend of the moment with us, and we'd just stay in little roadside motels and pick up the thrifty nickels and set word out around town to people what we're looking for. And I'd carry a little map and red X, you know, or okay, I bought a 69, I left it there. I bought a 79, I bought a, you know, left it stored there. Yeah. And I had a friend with a crappy beat to piss 18 wheeler who did like independent running in LA. And I call him and fax him or whatever, you know, all the locations of everything. And he'd come back and pick them up, bring them back home. And I already, because of my car, hobby habit that was totally out of control already. I was investing in a one mechanics shop. I was a, as 
sort of advising uh, a body shop that was an incredible artist, but a crap businessman. So he was going bankrupt. So trying to help him like find structure and mm -hmm. just try and help. So next thing those poor guys realize is nothing is free. Cause I'm like, Oh, I got a couple 18 wheelers coming full of FJ forties. Your back lot's not full. Can I park them there for a while? And I, I store these. Yeah. And all I would do is fix what was wrong with them detail them like forensically and put them back on the market and like super quick. Oh, wow. I'm onto something. So I went back to collect on the bet. They wouldn't, but they're like, Oh dude, it was like a joke. Are you serious? I'm like, Oh, come on. So do you really feel like it. that had a real, a real part of your driving force? I, I, I do because like, you know, something gets under your skin or like someone Proof says you, someone you can't wrong. do that. Yeah. It's like, I'm the same way about my word. If I get my word and say, I'm going to do something, even at unforeseen significant hardship and hassle, I will, Jamie wants to kill me over this sometimes. Like I'll do whatever it takes to honor that. And I feel this at the, I, we were talking about this recently, like a, I turned 50 this year and I feel at this stage of my life, I just want people to do what they say and honor their word. And if they don't, I'm not even, I don't have the patience for second chances anymore. It's like if someone follows through with anything, even trivial, but you say you're going to do it, do it. And then that is so concrete in humans. And I love that. And when you can value that with someone, it's everything Then nothing else really matters. Cause that there's such an integrity to that. I've learned too, that doing what you say you're going to do in both directions. Yeah. Both in what you promise that's positive and <laughs> punitive. Yeah. Is important. It's, it's because they won't take you seriously otherwise. And Correct. I don't mean they, I mean ever, no one will. It's like learning to fire a customer, which is a real hard one. It took me decades to do. And Jamie, you know, is a wee bit tougher than I, let's just say. <laughs> she's she's the one who said, you know, why are we dealing with this guy? He's from hell. We, we've got plenty of work because you're determined to follow through on what you committed to. And that's not always the best thing in the world. Yeah, And, and I'm glad I learned that lesson from her. Cause I, well, I use verbatim the way she to sold it to me. You learn that lesson every Constantly. time. Yeah. Cause no, it never but when stays. it comes to dealing with difficult people, like you're better. Well, we're, we're here to do what we love for people that really appreciate and love that we're doing it for them. So if that foundation is not there in the equation, then why are we doing it? Right? Yeah. No, so I agree. Move on. Well, it just, I tend to be sometimes, like you said a while ago, single-minded in my pursuit of of doing exactly what I set out to do. And when I say to someone, I'm going to do it, I'll take the loss. And it, it's hindered the growth of our team and our business and our finances many times, many times. But now I try to recognize before I get to those positions, I recently fired someone before he came, it became a client. Yes, we turned work down, but I mean that we were engaged uh, in a negotiation of multiple things and uh it was through a friend that works here now uh, a friend of his and he said he's gonna do it and then he didn't and then we waited a few weeks later and came back so oh, yeah i still really want to do this i said okay let's do it and then he started acting like we were pressuring him to do it and i went oh wait no 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 let's not let's not go forward with this guy i don't give a damn how much money he has let's let him Good go for you and 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 I don't feel bad. I feel better. You I feel better because I, I, I that was going to continue to pay in negative returns. And you for talk about having years. stepped on your wee wee and gotten in your brand's own way. Don't 
undervalue the fact that yes, in, in, in short targets or cycles, that may be true. And I certainly have done that. And I'm, um, imbecilically monocular sometimes like the building can be on fire, but I'm right here right now on this single task. And like, I don't know where my wallet is. I haven't gotten up to take a piss in eight hours. Like I'm in it Mm -hmm. and that's my disorder, but it is who I am. So I have to just live with it and deal with it. But at the end of the day, where you maybe short term have impeded yourself, your freakiness, your passion is why you're even in the position to get in your own way occasionally and, and protecting and honoring it by choosing who you work with and what projects you take on or don't, you know, are, are critical and, and love that you, you have that strength. You know, Mickey Drexler is an early customer of ours and Jamie knew him through her previous real job. I consider him a visionary. Um, and he's, he's, he's a, like a brand genius guy. And he's one of those people where he doesn't him and haul and it's either fuck yeah or hell no. And there's no room for anything in, in, in between those two. And like, even when I came up, you know, when we started TLC and that was going well and it grew and it grew and it grew. Then I started doing some prototype work and consulting for Toyota. And then that gave me the idea for Icon. And then I jumped in and did Icon. I literally did it to get the vision that was keeping me awake at night out of my Rain Man skull, right? Like I, I had to physically realize it. And I know you, you've been in that position too, just to keep whatever remaining sanity I did have. Right. But then Mickey was the first call I made. Cause I went, oh shit. Like, okay. I'm saying I got that out of my head, but here it is. And who the hell is going to pay for this? You know? Cause then I went back, I just did it purely on the passion and the vision and then I added up the spreadsheet, those things that you, you and I love so much and realized, oh shit. But you know, Mickey said, look, there's only one reason to be in your position. It's to create because you're driven and you have a vision. So if you build it, they will come. If you start now second guessing yourself and watering it down to what you think is going to be uh, what the market studies say, or, you know, you think people's tolerances are then it's not special. And more importantly, even if you can market it and convince people to think it's special, you're going to know it's not, and you're going to lose interest and you're going to be gone. It's, I think that's, I'm, I agree with it so much that it's rare that I don't have much to say, but it's something I have to remind myself of every day, pretty yeah. much to stay the course. And the big lesson I've learned is that it takes a lot longer for things to, to become clear and pay off the way you wanted them to. I mean, everything, you know, everything that when I started, I wanted to happen in a year took 10, right? You that know. It's funny. That's a big frustration for me. I'm finding it at, at this time in my life. Um, a couple of personal things have happened that have, as you know, you know, I've changed my perspective. My wife's going to win, but we're in the middle of a breast cancer fight. And that really made us stop and go, okay. What, what the fuck are we doing? What are we doing? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and what's important? And is there a finish line? You know, we seem to be racing towards something, but we haven't really defined what that is or where that is. So, like, puts everything in check. You know, what really matters becomes pretty you damn clear quickly. Meeting right? you last, well, I guess it was two years ago, but meeting you and talking about that with Jamie actually helped me go home and make some of my own perspective shifts and saying, where's the finish line? And not, and it doesn't need to be the finish line, but... You just have to, I think, 
have a plan. And I, and I think the one thing that a lesson I'm glad to have learned that, and there was a great business writer called Napoleon Hill, depression era. I mean, it's kind of cheesy and like, I can't say I learn anything new, but it frames things very cleanly. And like his concept of master alliance is critical for goobers like us. So the team that you have built that in essence, you know, keep the bumpers on your car, mm -hmm. you know, and keep you relatively in a lane, give you the freedom to stay in your creative happy space and keep your juices flowing, but actually keep the doors open and the <laughs> light bill paid and payroll met and product delivered. That's crucial. But at the same time, I'm finding myself getting really frustrated. I feel like everything just takes too fucking long. Like I get a project, I'm super excited and I'm all into it. I do the lookbook, I do the Pinterest board for the client, I do the sketch, I do the early CAD, renders done, ready to rock, textiles pulled, drivetrain plan. I'm like, let's go, let's build it. And then my team's like, uh, there's like a like a 27 month shit we got to finish before we can even start on that and like yeah, we'll talk uh, about that in three years it kills when we get to start it yeah you want to you want you want to do it now the boat in the water and you haven't realized that there's no keel there's no hole <laughs> there's no yeah that hasn't even have any damn the river yeah. to be able to float yeah, a boat. yeah, yeah. you, yeah. you want to go ski behind the boat right and and i don't and know why i don't know if years. it's age or um having been doing it so long or at this stage of resources and connections that it, it just seems to me like everything's more complicated and takes longer. I'm not allowed to use the word easy at my shop. Cause I always, when I'm pitching oh, it to my team, yeah. like, no, 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 this one's going to be easy. Like get out of here. Like that's it. They immediately. Yeah. They won't if it listen is to easy, me. Jonathan will find a way to make it a lot harder. Yeah. Yeah. I've noticed that. Yeah. That guy, he need to get rid of, you know, it's fun though with this leather work. From a design sense, you, you're taking such a rudimentary and simplistic thingamajigger that has few functional responsibilities, right? But the intimate elegance of the 60,000s adjustment to where that stitch line starts or stops or what is that? Oh, it, actually, if it's not tangent and if you break out at that point in the radius on that cuff or that pocket, right? It's incredible, the subtle nuances of it. It's so simple. And I think my return to, as the shop and so many employees and so much scale, you know, I'm running a company. Uh, so I'm doing the design, I'm doing sales, I'm web, whatever, but I'm not, I'm not TIG welding in the shop anymore. I'm not English wheeling. And I miss that. I miss that very simple, visceral connection with craft. But the reality is, if I try to do it in my own shop now, I've got a dozen guys that can do any single craft that I would be doing better than I can, yep. hands down. So we don't really like having guests at the house for more than two or three days anyway, so we converted the guest room into my little artillier. Your leather dungeon. So I got a full-on surgeon's lighting. You've seen it. Like yeah. It's on, and that's like that's my reconnect. And now I've back to having mangled callous fingers and it gives me that like in a, in a very simple form, right? The art of completion and, and uh, from concept to reality. I would be embarrassed to show you, but I took a shipping container, a 40 foot shipping container, which I've got a history of buying. I've had like, I have eight of them. 
think, but I took a 40 footer and turned it into a little workshop at the house that's completely separate from the house. So the noise, everything I do in there, doesn't bother her and, um, air conditioned and heated and has power and all that. And I'm building a workshop at home. I've got a TIG welder and a MIG welder (laughs) and I've got all this. This is one of the coolest workshops I've ever seen. Yet I'm building a workshop at home because more than anything, I want to be alone and have my intimate moments with the things I'm doing and take my own path towards learning. And yeah, all the guys here are better than me. They're going to walk in and tell me I'm doing it wrong. And, and it's not that I have a problem with that. I actually will ask them about how to do everything. Right. Totally. Like, I just want to totally make... open to learning, but you got to yeah. stay connected, even if you're not as evolved in the skill set as they are, because that's your baseline fuel. And without that, who are you? What are we? What are we doing? Yeah. And when I went to see you, it's so that I could learn. I actually, if I totally stop the truck, is that. Um, I've only recently realized the thing that makes me the happiest was actually we we're talking earlier about the finish line. Like, where's the finish line? When, when is this thing in this project enough? When do I feel good about it? Um, I uh, realized that the thing I enjoyed the most was learning. This is what drives me. When I wake up in the morning, I immediately start learning. Even if I'm in the shower, or I'm getting ready for the day. There's a podcast. Or there's something playing that's teaching me something. Yep. Or there's the master like classes. Like life's too short for fiction. I'm having. Oh yeah. yeah. I mean, I love a little bit of fiction, but for the Very most rarely. part, yeah, it's a movie, right? And it's and I'm reading something while I'm doing it. <laughs> but uh, is that so? I start the day learning, and and this is what keeps me the happiest. So I realized I needed to make more time for that in my personal life, even if it was work related, to be learning as much as possible and shut down from the things that. There are things I don't want to learn. I don't want to have to, I don't want to learn all the macros and all the things from a spreadsheet. Are there new tax laws that you have to collect from all states and figure out how to process? I don't want to tell property tax from sales tax. I don't Uh. want to, I don't want to know any of this shit because it just muddies my brain and keeps me from feeling happy. Now, the luxury that if your business is doing well is the luxury is that you start to be able to have that looseness and that that flexibility. Right. Be able to pick the hats that fit you best. So take time for yourself to learn and do it at what it is that drives you because ultimately the longer payoff is that is that the efforts that you're putting into your business or your creative venture will it will it will come to fruition within those it just won't happen tomorrow you're not going to learn how to shape a gas tank and put it on a motorcycle tomorrow but you're you don't learn have how to make to. a gas tank and then tell someone else hey this is what yeah. i learned while doing it or I'd even like if it's not that. even uh, i think i think the happiest people throughout my life that I've known are connected to craftsmanship, art, design, creation, let's call it, in one way or another, in some aspect of their life. Yeah. I think there's there's a fulfillment that you get that we've all gotten going all the way back to caveman times, right? Where, you know, taking that rock and chiseling it into a hammer that gets you dinner or into a wheel that becomes the cart that allows you to move around to chase the herd better, right? Whatever. Like it's, it's, it's fundamentally in us all. And the more we go back to connecting to that, like one of my favorite questions when I meet different artists in different realms, like, so what's your hobby, you know? And it's always super interesting, almost invariably. It's very cool to hear what creators do on their spare time. (laughs) They create something else. Yeah. You know, I, I do model trains. Those, those are my yeah. favorite. When something like that comes in, you're like, what? That's what you do? <laughs> but it's, but it's amazing. Like it's how like simplistically fulfilling it really is. Yeah. And even if you're, 
you're in a high paying job that you can't get out of because you're making so much money that it provides for your family, but it's eating your very soul. Yeah. You're going to be a less miserable prick if you get in the attic, in the garage, in the guest room and start tinkering and do, yeah. I don't care what it is, but like such an important thing, I think for I have a, people I have, to stay connected to. I have a buddy of mine uh, named Patrick, who's uh, the drummer in the Rack on Tours. And um, I met him here because he was on tour with some friends during South by and another band and uh, it was a BMW guy in motorcycles. And so that's of course how we started our friendship. And then later I got to know him through the rack on tours and seeing them play together. And I'm astounded by how good of a drummer he is. He's fantastic. Really, really talented. The last thing in the world he wants to talk about ever. Not because he hates it, not because it's not still something he's passionate about. He's done it all his life, though. No, he's into motorcycles and apparel design. So, so literally, That's great, he was though. just here on Good tour, and every day since then, he's not every day, but every time we talk, it's about this new BMW motorcycle, blah, blah, blah. And I just want to, because, you know, I play a little bit around with the guitar. I just want to talk to him about music, but I can't talk to him about music because I know that's like, making him and i still that, that i guess that's where i'm lucky is that i still like going through the motions of talking to, to him about his motorcycle stuff or the things that he's doing and the bike he might buy or this stupid deal he got on such and such and the modifications he's making and letting it go i still enjoy it i don't think let's talk about anything but music you know or anything but motorcycles so i feel lucky in that way talk to me about how your your projects have evolved over the years and then of course like how that's helped your imagination to grow like I, I, it you have to you have to dumb this down for most people, I think, because or even slow your brain down to to think about the steps through because it evolves quickly, like for especially for me, like it goes from I want to put a new tail on this motorcycle to I want to re-envision how a motorcycle is even crafted. Yeah, what is a motorcycle? Yeah, what is a motorcycle, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Define its dynamics, right? So 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 talk to me like I've I've watched your your things evolve in my very, you know, outside way. So from the inside, what do you think about how your projects have evolved? Well, I think with TLC, the concept was very simple. So it was just proper, as they were, restorations of classic Toyota Land Cruisers. Restorations. Mm -hmm. Then the reality of that, which I lacked the intellect to have the foresight, was, oh, oh shit, once I sell them, people are going to actually need to get them serviced somewhere. Then you thought they would just go away and never come yeah, back. Yeah, bye bye. Yeah. You know, yeah. and then well, they're going to need parts for them. And then the Toyota dealers culturally have less and less interest in maintaining the inventory of these older yeah. parts. And then I had a larger and larger hoard of those parts for those restorations. So then, okay, well, I should have a parts department, I guess. I'm going to need a service department and. Well, then, you know, and then this and then that. And then I also noticed more and more that people had a certain affinity to the aesthetic of them, to the romance of the safari Jeep, you know, mm -hmm. the sort of vibe. Your lifestyle, you're really yeah. what it says about who they are. Yeah, which to me was reading kind of cheesy, but at the same time I was realizing there were a lot of people are drawn to the romance and the aesthetic, but not the reality check of the archaic romantic charm 
that is a one barrel carburetor and a non synchro three speed yeah. and yeah. 1800s the uh, clip the cleave <laughs> springs, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So originally with TLC, we're like, people want a V8 conversion and we're like, leave now. You know, we were like, really? Oh, we were the sushi Nazis. Like, it was one way, it was dead or stock or nothing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. Even, even if it had an F and you want to put a 2F in it. No, no, no. Really? Yeah, you were one of those assholes. Totally. One of those I assholes. I was never one of those guys. And then um, I kind of started getting bored. It seems to be a theme, right? Like, it, after having done it, it's like, okay, I've done it. I've proven to myself and others that I can do it. We can do it well, and people dig them, and people want them. But okay, so the next one's red, or the next one's uh, orange, or, you know, it's just... Uh. Before you know it's a turbine jet engine. And, a <laughs> and, 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 and myself being always engineered driven um i too would get perverted by that new car that new truck's performance and convenience factors and whatever like whatever the latest and greatest little thingamajiggers were so i was already asking in my head like well how could we take that tradition that's been going on since the 60s of you know putting v8s in these old land cruisers and modifying them and evolving them for how people actually want to use them how they see them in this romantic image versus the reality when they get in it. And like, how could I do that? And, and that's when I started, you know, having what's my version of, you know, the sheep jumping over the fences as I fall asleep is a full CAD model. I'll be building out a model in high detail in my brain as I'm falling asleep and zooming and, you know, getting underneath, like use the 3d connection mouse. I've used one. Oh my God. I love them. Yeah. Right. So I'd be like, literally like getting just, my viewport, getting yeah. up inside of it and, you know, changing that chamfer or whatever. So that's what started icon was me saying, gosh, you know, I, I really have all these engineering inclinations and I've always had a love for various classic cars from, all continents through most eras uh, stopping in the sixties, probably. Um, so how do I, you know, I want to play with more platforms and try new ideas. And I want to bring in things that excite me in, in architecture, bring it into trans or in fashion and bring it into trans. And it, it was just by definition, TLC was too constrictive. So the idea behind icon was to get that one idea out of my head, build that vehicle, get it done. Did it did variants of it evolved. It was stoked that Mickey was right. People did appreciate it. And we quickly found an audience and then we started, you know, playing with other platforms. But I think the biggest evolution that's happened with us, other than being empowered by amazing tier one, component and engineering partners that have given us attention well beyond our merit when it comes to how many of their widgets we're capable of actually buying. But the partnerships we've had from these top top suppliers has been incredibly interesting. Same here, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been really Brilliant. lucky. Priceless. To, Priceless. And the stuff shows up and you go, oh my God, how did this end right? up in my hands? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And um, I think these one-offs have been my next uh, sort of I guess ADHD moment of, okay, well, I've built 160 FJs and they're chugging along good. And I'm on my third design generation and I'm constantly tweaking and innovating and trying new designs and tech or whatever in them. But like, and I still like the one-off stuff. So 
now these derelicts and reformers that we do. So big picture with TLC is still sales, service, restoration, and parts for Toyota Land Cruisers. Stock, give or take mild modifications, we've become a little lenient, you know, it's through to V8 conversions versus Icon's approach was, no, to really transcend and re-engineer and truly evolve these archaic platforms. We need to be honoring the silhouette and nothing else. And it needs to be completely cat engineered in chorus with emulation all together. And the Johnny Cash approach of this piece from that and that from this isn't, isn't going to get you where you really need to get. So that's what started Icon once it became a viable, sustainable business with the production FJ series, Broncos series, and Thriftmaster series based on the 47 to 53 Chevy pickups. Then I was enabled enough to get back into my happiest little sandbox, which is complete inefficiency shit business model of it's a one and done. So if you come and you want a 49 Hudson coupe, great. Let's do it. And if it's the, the right concept and the a cool client, we, we build it out. And it is just a deep dive of what is the best of design of that era? What works best with this project? What various craftsmen and art forms can we integrate into it while all in the relative constraints of the, of the design language of that era? So nothing's disruptive. Um, everything still hopefully flows, but then hiding a massive contrast in the performance, safety, emissions, drivability, ergonomics, soundproofing, everything about the actual user experience is massively redone. But they're so much fun. And the, the diversity of the challenges because of the diversity of the platforms that people are just naturally drawn to and come to us to do just means I'm constantly learning and diving into different stuff. And, and really, the, out of all the things you just said, the thing I heard the most, or the, the, I think was most impactful is there's so much fun. And I mean that it's the going, it's the process of going deep into all those things that's keeping you interested. Totally. And it's like you learning every day. Yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. Like and, I never liked 70s design really much at all, especially in transportation. Me neither, but... Client wants me to do a Superbird. Well, they're pretty abstract and cool. And yeah, I had the Hot Wheels. Well, next thing I know, I'm doing a deep dive and buying all the industrial design annual reviews for 70 or design consortium magazines from audio goods or kitchenware and shit from 70. And next thing you know, like, okay, this is amazing. This is going to be fun. So I love playing revisionist history, theoretical science, you know, like, okay, so what if... Mies van der Rohe had been on the design team, even though he never did anything. For the Roadrunner? Yeah. So, like, he never did anything in transportation, but in 70, the work he was doing was really the best of that era of design language. So what if we revisit and rewrite history and say, what if he had been brought in on a Superbird? Now what would the typefaces have looked like? Now how would that dash, you know, if it had a little... Macintosh, Marantz, you know, some Bauhaus, some funk linear, like, and that's so much fun. See, I think you're like me as a designer. I don't want to say I'm a, I'm designing something from the ether. I'm creating something new that's from nowhere. I used to think about design and if there's anything I want this podcast to focus on is, is people's sharing their story and, and, and how they got to where they are and getting to accomplish things they're accomplished or build the things they're build, building. But 
how it is they think about their own creative process and about design. Because design is where I've realized this is all my interests and all my education, the things I'm trying to learn are about design and my appreciation of that. And I used to think that all designers had to pull, pull ideas from the ether. They had to come from nowhere. To be a designer, to be an artist, you'd have a completely unique concept or, or a, a completely unique uh, method. Like, you know, what is your thing and, and how is it you to stake a claim so that everyone will go, that's Jonathan Wartz, right? But what I came to learn probably 15 years ago from a, a, a friend of mine who's a hotelier and an interior designer and many things is that she was able to um, take in her influences, pull pieces from each one of them, come up with a theme of what she was going to do for this piece or this property or this project and put her spin on it so that it, you actually saw her in it. You didn't see other people. One of the best um compliments I've gotten is a buddy of mine who, when he sees my photos, good, bad, or indifferent, he knows they're mine. Yeah. Well, he didn't have to tell me they're great. He didn't tell me they're good. They have a signature. They, he knows that it's, he knows that I looked with my one eye through that thing and took that photo. He could see when it was mine or was when it's someone I'd hired. No matter what, even my studio work, which I thought was, I still don't understand, but it's great, no, it's right? right cool. To see it, right? Um, and yeah, great designers that I know of, I don't know a single designer who you can't find something that they do in someone else that came before them. So I still come up with a theme when it comes to something I've kind of reimagined. And I always feel guilty for it. I always feel like that theme should just be that I created it. It's not desert mist I, or something. I think you know? at some point when I think it's really arrogant when designers like to f say that they're the only ones they're the first ones to have created this shape, this design, this, this new form. theme, this this new method. Because right? the yeah. reality is, let's even give them the benefit of the doubt and say it's subconscious. They're reacting to visual input that has come into their brain, mm -hmm. whether they realize it or not. Yeah, no, th th their language is reacting. But yeah. I've also I, I've had a theory for a while, and and I'm kind of fascinated by it, and I, I haven't really seen it structured or, or written anywhere uh, or talked about in design schools. But in my estimation, there's really two, two distinct types of designers in that one has an incredible ability to sit down with a client, understand to the best that person's skills allow them to articulate what it is they need to yeah. Create or hopefully With their vision, or even if they don't yeah. have a vision, but like I'm building a restaurant, it's going to be A, B, C, D or whatever. I think there's, there's an elevated brilliance in designers that I am not where they can get into that person's head and, and ideate what they couldn't even communicate to you in that meaning, not to mention physically realize or sketch or create final form for it. Designer friend of mine, uh, Michael Dottillo, I think is one of those people. I've, I've worked with him. Um, I've hired him as a designer to help me on things that I couldn't get through. Um, I've had clients that outside of my transportation work fund side projects that I've worked with and brought him on to manage the team. And, and I think he's that sort where it's not about how he sees it. It's about his ability to communicate words and visions and ideas 
into physical form and environments and languages, kind of like Kubrick-esque, right? Mm -hmm. The other kind are the Raymond Lowy's, the Mark Newsons, the Philip Starks, where they see the world in a very particular way. Therefore, like your photography, maybe like my work, you see it, you know it's mine because... It, it it's definitely reacting to or but it's it's done so in a way that's coalesced around someone's unique way of seeing the world and what's interesting though is you go back to you feel bad about framing it or theming it i think our type of brains must do that case in point raymond lowey yeah you ever seen any of his personal cars mm -mm. they're horrible Oh, really? Oh, they're beyond bad. Because there's no frame like for the... Like floor de lee and finials and shit on shit, like layers of shit. Because <laughs> there were no rules, yeah. that type of brain can't structure it and frame it. Like even like his Palm Springs house, which is phenomenal. Amazing. It's amazing, mostly because he didn't have the time to deal with it. He found someone, the builder he wanted. He went out there with rocks and sticks and said, I want this view this way i see the pool should extend into the house and carry out that way i want it oriented towards that sight line to that ridge and to the 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 sunset and i think the bedroom should be here and that should be there there and then he fucked off and went and did what he does well and let someone else knock it out but every time he did a car on his own it's just so bad so so i think it's good to have those rules yeah and i think there's there's it's too distinctly different heads that become designers yeah and i think the highest genius is is that individual that it's not their dna necessarily consistent through everything they do although they become the rock stars they become the celebrities because it's so recognizable and what they do is highly admirable and i'd like to think i'm part of that community so i'm not poo-pooing it yeah but the, the 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 next level the rain man genius of design to me is the one who doesn't bring any of his own ego or shape or form language he just brings an open mind and is able to pull out of you what you can't even necessarily verbalize and create it that blows my mind every time see that process happens phenomenal i'm trying to think of an example of my own not me i mean of someone else and seeing that happen but do you have an example of one that you can think of, like, outside of that, like, where you can, where you clearly in, saw in my personal experience? Yeah, you or someone you've observed it with? Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to get. Uh, how do I? Uh, I want to piss off the guy. Okay, so there. Let's say there's there's a person who comes from a uh, career path that has nothing to do with design or passion, building product, etc. Let's say it's more say financial sector, right? Mm -hmm. And that person gets to a point in their life where they want to do something more creative and more fulfilling, acknowledge they don't necessarily have the skill set for it, but in their life, in their experience, they've identified that there is a need for a product that doesn't exist. And they start trying to piece it together and they, they, they're like, yeah, there's, but it's not, it's like that, but that's not really doing it. Cause it's not like this and it doesn't do that, but this kind of does that, but doesn't do this. And it's too big and too fat or too heavy. And like they're, they're a hot mess, but they're onto something and it's getting under their skin, which I love seeing happen to, mm -hmm. especially that kind of person because yeah. they're, they're finding that, that passion. Mm -hmm. So 
uh, they came to me to do it. And I was like, I, I, you know, like, Hey, I don't know how to herd that kind of cat anyway. And I'm, I'm more of a selfish, like, okay, give me the idea and an open checkbook and let me party on. Mm-hmm. And I'm yeah. in, you Leave know? me alone. But, but and, and, and I've, I've got a job. So I, I reached out to um, my designer friend and, and had him come on to really pilot it. And just watching the process of the conversations being very disjointed and, and not even clearly articulatable, and even the visual references, the screenshots for guidance and directives, really not even being intrinsically relevant. But seeing how Michael got into and I was moderately involved with it as well, but into the client and to my head to flesh it out. And really even to the point of the next week's conference, being able to verbalize it to the extent that the client is like, yeah, he says, yes, yes, that, yes. Like, yes. Even totally before registers, a, a, a right. pencils on paper. And, and I watched that go all the way through to, full 3d models and you know brand lookbook for the concept and it's, it's almost like it's, a it's new incredible term that, that i've not heard but maybe it is one that's out there it's like emotional intelligence is one thing but design intelligence and communication intelligence and being able to combine all three of those things really right is yeah, that it's it's emotionally different. understanding what someone's trying to come to to convey to you that's not a um, technical designer or, or you know used to using the terminology that you're used to hearing right but still conveying the feeling that they're looking for and then translating that into a design language that can be made, right? Or, or, or drawn or whatever the hell big, it is. A big key to being able to do that, I think, is figuring out how to divorce your ego from the equation and being able to acknowledge that it's the client's vision you're trying to envision. So don't bring your preconceived concepts or favorite arc line or surface tension or geometry because it's part of your brand image or DNA, like wholeheartedly leave all that shit at the door and bring a pencil and paper and open heart ears and listen to the client and what they want. I don't know if and I'm, I'm not that I, guy. I'm not saying, down I don't for think that. I can ever do that. I can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I yeah. can't. But I've, I've learned to respect it. it, you know, yeah. seeing, seeing it done. And it led me like, like you said, you know, over decades of experience to really understand that they're, they're, they're two completely different animals, two completely different sources of design. Some of my friends that I can think of right now, an architect friend of mine, who's who I consider to have an incredible eye and incredible design. I know when it's his building because I've, you know, like before I knew him, I knew that it was his building. He has a signature of taste, but I've also seen him just listen to people. He's able to listen to lots of different styles of people and understand lots of different styles of people. I'm not, you know, I can be empathetic, but only to a degree. And it always translates into looking like something I want to make. <laughs> I'm good at listening, yeah. but like, if I'm going to give them three renderings <laughs> that, that listen to what they said, one's really listening, but I personally don't like it. It'll and be I'm like a South them. Park shit sketch. And then the other one could be, eh, whatever. The third one's going to have environmental lighting. It's going to be full CGI, That's 4K, so sexy. badass, yeah, sexy, yeah. so that they don't even realize it, but like, oh, yeah, that one. Yeah, you know, and it's just because it's the one I wanted them to pick. <laughs> you know, You're manipulating place. them completely. Totally. But the truth is, that's I th- you know, and what I try to think is that most people, if they're coming to us, it's because 
you have a reputation. They know what to expect, and they're here to pay you to do what you do. Don't uh, you love enough, a few things more than a client who says, look, build it like you're going to keep it. I do what I do well. That allows me to come to you to allow you to do what you do well. So I'm not going to tell you what to do it. I'm going to tell you, I like these colors or this is important to me. Otherwise, it's your art and do it. And I just want to hug them and kiss them. Like, you know what? I love that freedom. You, I was in the back of my brain as you were saying that. I was thinking, no, I don't have enough of those. But you know what? I know, Not only have I gotten a lot of those, friends, family, and clients, and people that don't know me from anybody, I've even had corporations, right? BMW. BMW came in and said, no, no, just just do what you do. Just just do what you would do. Just don't make it look like what we I've did. I've never had a corporation in my industry give me any freedom. In fact, I usually it. try and kill it every time, and then I go, well, why are you paying me to not listen to me? Like, why, why am I here? I'm not saying this on a frustrating experience, but generally that's the that's the line we tow, which is, you want me to do it? Okay, well, you got to let me just do it, right? Because every time you call me, it costs me money. Every time you interfere, it costs me emotional capital. And if I lose emotional capital, then the end result won't be so good. So just, you know, and I've, it's, yeah, I've been lucky. I just like to keep moving. That's my greatest, frust probably client frustration of even the wonderful clients that, you know, we do work with versus the ones that maybe the, the vibe or the sense of design or goals don't seem to align well. But the ones that all of that seems good. But the modern attention span is just so difficult, especially the modern, highly successful attention span, because they're doing what it is they do that gave them the success or they've been enabled to the point that no one made them stop and pay attention and follow mm -hmm. through. I don't know what it is, but like sometimes I find that really tough when they want to be involved, yeah. but they can't reply quickly to keep your balls rolling and like they don't realize you've got moved on a, you know a fixture in the five axis that's oh, yeah. at a halt with an engineer standing there picking boogers because you're waiting on the final yay or nay because they want to be involved in every last detail but then they can't focus but then i love when they want to be that involved because it'll be that much more personal and satisfying uh, a, a heirloom and something they're going to keep but it's like Argh. yeah no i'm with you i'm with you man Here's some brass tacks. Do you have an audition process for your clients? No, not at all. I didn't think so. Not really. Yeah. Do you speak the same language? Do you want to pay me to do your thing? I'll do it. Right. What do you have in mind? You know, what are you thinking? What do you dig? Where do you live? What's your style? Do you like vintage? Do you like modern? What's your house look like? What are your hobbies? Let's are get you into, into it. vintage watches? What decade, what continent, your favorite see, design language? Like I interview clients like I interview people. Sometimes I don't interview people. Sometimes I just get a good sense and they're in. Same right? here. Like to me, I go with my gut. Either I get a good flow and we're off to the races. Sometimes I'm horribly wrong. We typically, if once I decide I want to hire someone, we take them around to try to get talked out of work in here. <laughs> so I do the same thing with clients is that I say, okay, it's going to cost you a crazy amount of money. It's going to take three times longer than whatever I tell you. <laughs> and, uh, I haven't tried that. You're going to want to fucking kill me. And uh, it's going to break down before you get to the end of the street. <laughs> do you still want to do it? And if they say yes, and I say, all right, you're our guy. And then, of course, you exceed and you're better than all those things, right? But I try to set the bar very low of expectation, very low, because I don't want to emotionally deal with their disappointment. The same way I told you earlier that I don't want to deal with 
a stranger and someone asking me a question and wanting to learn something about something I do or what I think or whatever. I don't want to disappoint that person. And I sure as hell don't want to disappoint a client because then it would suck all the fun out of it for the next one. Yeah. I, I it, it stays with me. That You've been part. pretty, pretty blessed. I, I think partially in, I think you're in a summer situation where our wait times are so obtuse. I mean, they're getting better, but there's still at least a year for anything that like, that kind of trims the consumer herd down to people that are more apt to have an understanding and appreciation for the process of what we do in general. Yeah. Um, so I'm laughing because I'm thinking about what, when you came in earlier, there was two guys talking with my shop guy and there was a motor sitting there. It's a aerial square four motorcycle engine. And I, I didn't talk to this person, but I was told that he called in, spoke to this shop manager Shop manager said, yeah, he said, how much will it cost to rebuild this motor? And he said, it just costs what it costs. And he goes, what do you mean? You can't tell me what it's going to cost? He goes, ah, we built motors for 30 grand. We built motors for 10 grand, but I can't tell you what it's going to cost. It's an hourly it. rate because I don't know until I get in there how messed up it is. There is no price. And apparently it was not nice. They kind of had a confrontation about it. And me hung up mad at my shop manager, called back a couple days later and said, hey, so we're going to bring that motor by. <laughs> Because no one else could do what we do. Well, <laughs> That's and, all and, there is to and, it. And hopefully no one else was honest, blunt, whatever you want to call it. And said that. Yeah, well, because shit, the motor's from what year? Uh, 50s. Okay. Early 50s. We don't know if it Late was... Late 40s, early 50s. Built on Probably a Friday. 40s, actually. Or built on a Monday. We don't know if it was built when the metal shortage was so bad that they used whatever base shit metal they could get because of the military effort. Right. We don't know if Luigi built it or Frank built it. We don't know if they, we don't know anything. If it had oil in it while it yeah, was running, if it and on yeah. and on and on. How many so miles you, it's you got can't it? answer yeah. it. And I I'm I'm that way, like, especially with the more obtuse projects. Like, I guess I will do a bit of what you do where I'm like, look, I can't give you a hard number. I can't give you a hard time. I can't give you hard anything other than passion, commitment, resources, track record, contacts. It'll be done. It'll be done right, but it's not leaving here until it's done right. So, oh, no, I need this by my wife's birthday next spring. Then I'm like, then, then. Sorry, not your guy. Go on yeah. eBay or pick your favorite reality show. Like, just I, go buy a, Jeep, your guy. a new Jeep. Yeah, better yet. <laughs> um, can you say how much your typical, um, this is, I didn't write this question because it's a dumb question. Because it doesn't apply to me. How much does your typical typical build cost? If it's a production model that we've already amortized yes, and go. standardized, uh, you're anywhere from 195000 up to about 260 And then if it's a one-off, fuck if I know. You know, it's just the scope the of the thing. projects it is brutal. So I mean, the, the, the most honest answer is... Projects completed and delivered or in process currently limited to the last three years. One-offs have been anywhere from 110000 to $1.1 I was just going to say if you cross the million mark, yeah. It's easier to do with a car. We've, we're, and uh, they're the least profitable, which is very interesting. Really? Like, yeah, people think it's... Uh, the problem is the the more specialized, the more one-off, the more of a resource sucker that project will be. Yeah, it's true. The more of the top artisans in internal or external labor they're going to gobble up. The 
you know, it's just they, it just they take so much time and energy. I mean, we honestly, we could not make a business of doing the derelicts and the reformers. No, well, I mean, you can Impossible. survive and you can pay your bills on it, but you're, there's no. no scale, really. Think you lose money? I've lost money, but on average, I make six to ten percent. It's net not net. a lot. When everything's it's not done, a lot. no, it's stupid. It's For really projects not much that take money. Multiple years of life. No. No, it's asinine. You get but, more gray hair because of it. <laughs> but, but again, it's the thing that keeps me most passionate about the entire umbrella. Therefore, it's absolutely priceless, and I think it's been priceless in our uh, its its ability to communicate our prowess and capability and versatility. I mean, we kind of created this odd space of retro modern cars when i first started there was nobody doing what we're doing it was like either hot rod or pro touring but there was nothing with this sort of unique combination now it's like a budding industry and i'm stoked for the most part to see that happen um at the same time there's um you know we've indirectly created opportunities for people that see a a quick way to make money or so it seems topically of oh geez those guys have a wait list that can't be that hard. So our business model will be we're just like them, but we're quicker and cheaper. So this gives us a more elegant way of answering that without having to directly address it. So the more knowledgeable consumer or owner will ideally have done their homework and, and learned that the easy way. But if not, then even topically see, well, these guys aren't one trick ponies. They're doing all sorts of stupid shit. Right. So, And those things you do to keep yourself interested actually work uh, for you to continue to have your work find the right client is yeah. the way I try to tell myself, mm -hmm. right? Totally. Like, um, and it's our new vision for 2020. We call that department uh, for derelicts and reformers DNR. Mm -hmm. We're actually made a, a Do not big, resuscitate? Big, <laughs> that that okay. was the old okay. thing. Okay. We're right. heading there. Okay. No, we're turning around. It's R&D. Okay. In our own heads oh. of how we look at it. Yeah. So a lot of these projects are premises for possible future product lines based on the knowledge and experience gained from that one-off project. That makes sense. Um, I was going to say, uh, it, the, I first talked about you from Leno. Leno. Leno was the first one that brought you up to me because I was talking to him about my own aspirations in the car world. And he'd seen what we did in motorcycles. And when I first met him, we had, I hadn't done anything, really. We were... I just got a stroke of luck. I spent a week with him in the shop. It is it is workshop there, and um, told him what I wanted to do. A few years later, he saw that I was doing it and was impressed and invited us and was cordial and really supportive. And the, I don't remember how many years ago it was. Probably just a few years ago. And I started to tell him what I wanted to do with the automotive and cars and things. And he goes, "Have you talked to Icon?" <laughs> and I was like, "No, what's Icon?" Because to me, Icon was. Um, uh, this motorcycle gear brand in Portland, yeah. right? And uh, he's like, no, 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 this guy, he's here, he's here in LA and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, the Bronco guy. Cause that's what I knew. I actually didn't remember, I didn't know TLC or any of that stuff. And he goes, yeah, that this guy's getting it right. And I don't remember exactly what was said, but he literally told me that you were the one I was supposed to pay the most attention to. Cool. And I thought been, that was really- been really good to us over yeah, the years. Yeah. He, I mean, he's, he was our, first or second guest on the podcast because he was here. I was like, hey, you want to do podcast? Sure, let's do it. Like, sits down. <laughs> you should, the podcast quality isn't that good, and it was after a long ride in the heat, in the middle of the, like, you know, eight, 90 degree heat outside. 
uh, we just sat down and started talking. It wasn't like any sort of structure whatsoever, but he still had me in stitches the whole damn time. And it's just so cordial and so gracious with, with everything. Right. You know, I don't know if you ever call him, but he's the guy who answers the phone every single fucking time. Mm -hmm. I've never had him not answer the phone. Yeah. Um, yeah, but he's, he's, <laughs> you're his guy. That's what I'm saying. He, he thinks, he thinks you've got it right. Um, the last thing I want to talk about, and, and then I'll let you go or we go have some sushi. Um, Tell me about your culture. And I didn't really, I met one of your guys, and of course I know Jamie, but how do you maintain the culture? I mean, you've got how many employees? Talk to us about your team. Uh, we've got uh, 54 people in-house currently. Um, that's just under your roof. That doesn't count all the people that do work for you. Correct. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. just on staff. Um, one thing that we've, and, and I'm as uh, like the capitalist, pig on my left shoulder versus the soulful artist on the right shoulder kind of in conflict over this. The way I've always seen it was I didn't want soulless cubicle widget stamping sub assembly stations like mass production mm -hmm. because they're, they're such passion born vehicles and they are handcrafted. I want that culturally to be important through every last person in the shop through to the guys that are putting the parts on the shelf for the other guys to actually build the things with. So we have dedicated, first off, between TLC and Icon, they're two different religions in one church. Yeah. So they're independently staffed wholeheartedly. So a TLC service guy only does that. A TLC resto guy only does that. A TLC manager only interfaces with TLC. Yeah, I've seen it. Clients it's physically completely, separated in the shop. Completely segmented. Over there's that and over there's yeah. this, yeah. But then within the icon structure, we have, you know, f corporate or whatever you want to call it, but, you know, Sharif, Jamie, me, project managers, procurement parts, mechanical engineer, electrical engineer that sort of share responsibilities uh, at, over the company. Um, and then each team, though, like the Broncos are built by the Bronco team. So there's a dozen guys that that's all they do is build Broncos. Within that team, we train people, we certify them in different stages of the build so that we create pride in who has the most certifications and we create communication and knowledge share. So this guy is only certified for chassis build, but he really wants to do final assembly versus that guy's powertrain and electronics. So there's a camaraderie, there's a pride, and there's also rivalry, but in a healthy way. But there's still cohesively a team that takes pride because they were involved critically enough in key stages to take that vehicle from dilapidated beat to piss through to first test drive. It's ta-da, wow. And I, the, the retention that creates has been phenomenal. And we have that same sort of structure throughout the departments. The only thing that doesn't happen is the FJ guys don't tell Bronco what to do or build Broncos and vice versa or Thriftmaster. It's a knowledge share, but not necessarily. A, yeah, yeah, they're a, independent a teams. There's yeah. some east side, west side story stuff going on. <laughs> there's the, the jets and the... There's what a is knife it? and occasional uh, dance that breaks out. And yeah. What was west side story? It was the jets and the... Uh, Somebody, shit. I'm the only Broadway geek, anyway. Yeah, but uh, never been so, a, never been a fan of uh, sung uh, uh, lines. Well, you all. haven't drank enough, then. All right, but anyway, um, but to a healthy extent, right? Because that's good. Because FJ wants to, at the end of the year, 
have delivered more FJs than Bronco has or what have you. And then DNR are the true weirdos. Um, my boys, the derelict and reformer crew is, uh, six guys. And that team is managed differently where there's a project manager that does sublet coordination and client communications when I'm not available to do so. I do all the design, most of the early CAD and sketch and render before it goes to my Emmy who does it better than me and makes it actually work. But then with the guys, it's two guys from start to finish. On the floor, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I I've saw them <laughs> working on that Chevy, I think, but yeah. Which, again, like, as a businessman is absolutely asinine. But as a, their art, so the, the ownership and the continuity that you'll see from the decision of what angle should that piece be broke to or what radius should be mm -hmm. on this widget 10 layers of the onion later on the opposite side of the vehicle at a completely different application you'll see that same radius language carried mm -hmm. through so i think that, that yeah, yeah that's a key part of the consistency hmm. and uh, we for the production stuff i do try and hold the rtfm angle read the fucking manual don't reinvent it's repeatable We've invested greatly in our quality and in engineering and batch orders so that there's consistency. That being said, we have structured team-wide meetings uh, with every team at least once a week, daily meetings with all teams, someone in management, but really open forum sit-downs. Anyone has an idea, a new way to think about something, a new concept to save time and or improve quality. We're all ears and we'll take it this in. Once a month or when you do that? Weekly. Weekly. You do that weekly. And then quarterly company-wide sit-downs. And then full financial transparency to what our goals are, what are what we did do, what we screwed up, what we succeeded at. And then at the start of the year, end of the year, we'll announce our initiatives and my next stupid idea. It's funny. That I, I need buy-in on. Uh, oh, God. I was just going to say... I think it's probably unwise that I asked that question in the form of the podcast because that's only interesting to me. <laughs> the meetings and when they happen in the one-on-ones. No, no, it's I disagree. I think no, anyone maybe. who's running creative teams, there's so many ways that can go right or go wrong. I'm just learning by budding, beating my head against the wall all the time and figuring out what I'm doing wrong. That's, and I, That's just the short answer to what I said. <laughs> Basically. We'll get some feedback when we stop rolling and everybody in here starts yeah. yelling and going, why the fuck don't we do that? Uh, we seem to spend our monthly meetings talking about who didn't load the dishwasher correctly or <laughs> I encourage as much communication as possible without it being a complete and total distraction from getting Well, we your just job make done. sure there's a structured forum for it. Now, for example, my engineer, we moved his office to like a control tower up a staircase at the darkest I saw back it. farthest yeah. corner in our Reminds huge me building. of taxi, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, totally. It's like, a, I can see that. Because constantly everyone was banging on his door, wanting this adjusted, that adjusted, which no disrespect to them, but they're not aware of the bigger picture, let's say, of how that impacts the wiring harness connector that's supposed to go through that hole if you change that hole. And what about... The grommet, we have a thousand of molded and made on the shelf that's designed for it. So you make that simple change. You don't understand the reaction. And I was worried I was losing that control. I'd hop in one of my own designs, 
go to use something, go, what the fuck, this changed, why did this change? I go to the engineer, oh yeah, I updated that file two months ago, yeah, we have a hundred of them, you know, whatever, you know, we changed it because so-and-so came, well, what do you mean so-and-so came to you, like, and there was no, like, structure chain of chain command of for command. those, yeah, so, yeah. I hate paperwork, but there's a document now, and that doc comes to my desk first, and then I'll Q&A it and decide, then put it on the engineer's G sheet, or say, no, thank you, but thank you for thinking, but no. What I've realized <laughs> is to try to explain it in a way that isn't patronizing, that we're playing chess, not checkers, and that many moves ahead are having to be considered in this move. And so you might think this trickle, there is no trickle down from, yeah, let's just make this hole bigger. That's going to affect so many other things on the road. And, and that, isn't, that doesn't necessarily mean improvements that we're against. That means compromises that we're against. Yeah. We have to do it this way for that Especially reason. Especially once yeah. you get out of one and done. The yeah. second you get into, which is, yeah, this is something I'm going to build 150, 250, 350 over the years of. It's bad enough dealing with suppliers that change stuff yeah. and don't tell me. And it shows up and we go to use it and it's changed and it interfaces differently and the chain reaction that causes it. So any of those val any of those that we have any sort of control over, we have to be hyper cognizant to manage yeah. and make sure we're doing it at the right time for the right reason in the right way. And I generally with our models like the FJs on Gen 3, as we call it, that's the third massive generation of a spec-built test mule vehicle where we're trying all my and other stupid ideas all at once and see how they stick and work to then decide what did and what didn't work to then create the next generational improvement thereafter. But we're constantly tinkering and playing and prototyping. Like certain clients that we know really use the hell out of their trucks or cars more than others or are, are just more present or more aware. We're going to value their feedback, especially if they're local. We'll guinea pig them. We say, man, I got this new stupid idea for this, yeah. you know, focus 12 degree focal LED with. 60,000 ohm resistors, so you're not going to be able to tell it's on, except in certain lighting conditions, I've noticed you can't see these knobs, and people have commented, and I'm thinking, this light angle might work, might be the best thing. Will you, I'll just put it in your truck, I'll take it out if you don't like it, but would you, like, live with it for months and let me know what you think? And that's been critically important. Actually putting it to use. Yeah. 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 Well, man, I was going to say, um, I'm really looking forward to seeing what you do next. Like what the next thing is. Don't you don't have to talk about it now, but I'm I know there's something big because there always seems to be something big that, that's brewing around. Um my personal goal is to be able to afford maybe like generation five or six of the of a Land Cruiser. One showed up here at Gearhead Sunday the other day and I've I've only had one FJ forty. I had it for a very short amount of time. I've had a bunch of FJ sixties. A really nice original FJ forty showed up here this weekend for Gearhead Sunday and I was like, Oh my god, I still want one, but I want an aluminum one from you that doesn't rust and I can drive forever and give to my kids. So I don't have kids, but you know what I mean? To pass it on to someone, I'm going to, uh, generation five or six, just right. let me know. Or I can that, be your test mule. Keep that Gucci I like, and it'll appreciate enough that we'll be able to pull off the trade <laughs> by that. Probably not. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe if your shit really starts to fall apart. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, I, I, it's been uh, fun doing this deep dive with you and, I think I'll be more bore the piss out everyone, but we always do this when we get together. There'll be anyway. like three or four guys that will get a lot from this. Okay. Or women. And uh, we'll come back and do another one for those three people. It's fine. There you go. All right. Let's go get some sushi. Sweet. All right. See you. Pass. 
Now's the time of video where most people ask for money or donations or whatever. I'm not gonna ask you for that. What I'm gonna say to you is, if you wanna see more videos and you wanna learn more of what we've learned, and you wanna see a deep dive into a lot of these topics, go to our website and buy something. We sell everything from motorcycle gear, helmets, uh, motorcycle parts, specialized tools. We sell lots of things and they've all taken us years to figure out what the best stuff is and we figured it out. So go to revivalcycles.com. There's some really good stuff there. Everything from like kick-ass hand grips from Posh to Radiance LED lighting and everything in between. We wanna teach you what we know, but this stuff takes time and it takes real effort to make these videos and make them good for you guys. So go support us by helping yourself to the cool stuff you already need. And it helps us because we make a little bit of profit and then we can justify doing more videos. Thanks for your support.